0: This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit MPBOnline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, host of the original Southern Remedy, the show where I answer your medical questions. Subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on any podcasting app. Thanks for joining me here today on Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. I'm your host, Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And today we're going to be talking about the updated diabetes care guidelines. So the those guidelines get updated yearly and a large portion of them stay the same, but there are some... Um, lifestyle specific updates that make me really happy to see that we're um, starting to focus in on uh, on those a little a little bit more in depth um, as well as your general diabetes guidelines that you need to be. Um, looking out for in terms of when you should be getting um, screened or checked for those things and if you already have diabetes what are the things that you can do to help keep your blood sugar under great control um, or improve or lower your risk of any other cardiovascular disease. So if you have a question or a comment for me today email me anytime at fit at mpbonline.org. All right. So I mentioned that these guidelines get um, updated yearly and they get published and they are quite lengthy. Um, Even for healthcare providers, they publish not only the the full guidelines, but kind of an abridged updated uh, version for us that kind of highlight the changes as well as all of the things that we should be doing. But Whenever I see new guidelines come out, I always think, but what do my patients need to know? What are the things that you guys need to know without having to read this massive uh, collection of, uh, of information? So I want to go through some of those things and make sure that I pull out the things that are really, really important for you to know. Um, I want you to remember, though, that this is in no way an exhaustive list. So all of the things that I talk about today are not all of the new updates or all of the things that you need to know about diabetes care, but I'm trying to highlight some things that are fundamental to having good control of your blood sugar and knowing about your disease process. All right, so the first area we're going to start with is the word screening. And we've talked about screening on this show before, but in essence, screening means looking for something when we don't have symptoms, right? So when we have a colonoscopy, when we have a screening colonoscopy, we're doing that to check for any sign of colon cancer. When we don't have symptoms now if you had rectal bleeding and you went in and they did a colonoscopy that's not necessarily a screening colonoscopy that's something we call diagnostic so screening is asymptomatic looking for the presence of a disease process early on so that we can uh, hopefully uh, reverse it or identify those folks that are at risk for developing things. So, in terms of diabetes, what do we mean by screening? Well, usually we are looking for either pre diabetes or actual diabetes and there are multiple kinds of diabetes the two kind of or three most common ones that we're going to kind of hang around in today are your type 1 diabetes where we just don't produce insulin anymore Uh, in the past we kind of would have classified that or you would have heard it referred to as juvenile diabetes or insulin dependent diabetes um, because it was usually seen in children but that is not the case um, always there are some uh, later onsets, usually in the you know late twenties. I think early 30s is is kind of the the latest. I I personally have seen that. But um, that's kind of why that word juvenile is removed, especially uh, the fact that type 2 diabetes, which is the one that we tend to think about when we say the word diabetes, can happen in children as well. So the the better terms for them are type 1, type 2, and then you've got gestational diabetes as well, which is when that um, diabetes begins in pregnancy. Not necessarily if you had diabetes before pregnancy and you just are continuing to have diabetes in pregnancy, but kind of the first onset of a a blood sugar issue during pregnancy. So when we talk about pre-diabetes, that is um, what people have historically called borderline diabetes, or um, I've had people say, well, they told me I almost have diabetes And that's probably what we're talking about is this pre-diabetes range. And we can check for that in a couple of different ways. There are just kind of written tests that we can take, uh, that kind of give us a a risk of developing diabetes or, or being at risk for prediabetes. And then there are blood tests that we can do as well. So let's start with the least invasive, uh, which is just answering questions, right? And, and who is at risk for things. So screening for prediabetes and type two diabetes, um, in a completely asymptomatic adult, somebody that doesn't have other heart issues or is not overweight or in the obese category, just your regular adult patient or adult person should be taking one of these risk questionnaires to see what our risk is. And you can easily find that um, by looking, uh, by just Googling pre diabetes risk test but it's located on the CDC website. And it's uh, can be done a couple of different ways. You can take it online, meaning you answer the questions online, and it gives you your score, or you can print it out and take it on paper and take that to your healthcare provider, whichever one you prefer. But why it's so important for us to do something like that is the fact that one in three American adults has prediabetes. Okay, that's a pretty powerful number, right? Um, 33% or so have uh, prediabetes. If we wanted to put that in millions, that's 84 million adults. That's a lot of us. Um, And what is even more shocking is that 90% of those folks don't know. And they don't know that they are in that prediabetic range. And if we don't do something, which I talk to my patients about, going the other way. If we think about prediabetes kind of sitting in the middle between a completely normal blood sugar and a blood sugar in the diabetic range, prediabetes is in the middle, and I want us to go the other way so that we go back towards a more normal glucose pattern and not forward towards a uh, more diabetic glucose pattern because all of the other health consequences that come along with having a high blood sugar, we then start to accrue. So, knowing what you are, where you sit in terms of your glucose levels is really important. So, this prediabetes risk test, it is, I think it's seven questions. Yes, seven questions. And none of them are too invasive. It's things like, how old are you? And you get a point based off of that, right? Like, younger than 40 is zero points, 40 to 49 is one, so on and so forth. Um, uh, Male versus female. Have you ever been diagnosed with gestational diabetes? Do you have a mother, father, sister, or brother with diabetes? Have you ever been diagnosed with high blood pressure? Are you physically active? And then what's your weight category? And it even gives you a little um, picture and shows you at what point you'd be zero points, one point, two point onto there. And the number that we're looking for is to be less than five on this. That would mean that we're not at increased risk for prediabetes or diabetes. If we're five or more, that is kind of our call to, a- to, call to action. Like, okay, we are at risk for the development of prediabetes or type 2 diabetes. We absolutely need to be developing an action plan to go the other way so that we go back uh, closer to a normal glycemic uh, pattern or a glucose pattern. Now, this is a screening test. does not mean it's a diagnostic test. If you scored more than five, five or more on this, now's the time to have a conversation with your healthcare provider and get some blood work done because that's going to be what helps us actually see what your blood sugar is doing at any particular point in time. Now, I mentioned that every adult should take that paper test that I just talked about. What about... Um, other folks, right, Um, for a blood test at age 35, right? 35, we should be going, you know what, I need to know what my blood sugar is. And, of course, earlier than that, if we have any type of other risk factors for um, heart disease, you know, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, those kinds of things. But um, with no other risk factors, we absolutely should be getting things checked by about age 35. And if those tests turn out normal, we need to be getting them at least every three years after that. Right? A lot of your um, insurances are going to cover uh, at least a, an annual wellness exam and an annual um, glucose check. Now, whether they cover a blood sugar or whether they cover a hemoglobin A1C, varies depending on insurances. And some of them may not cover it at all until you reach a certain age. But we should be having that discussion and that conversation uh, with our healthcare provider. So what do we? what's it need to be? What do our blood sugars need to be? I get asked that all the time. And a textbook perfect blood sugar or in the normal range blood sugar when we have not eaten for at least eight hours, so often we call that first thing in the morning blood sugar or a fasting blood sugar, we want that to be 70 to 100. So if you don't have any issues with your blood sugar, that's the range that it's going to be in. That's not the same for the target I want you to be at if you have diabetes, okay? We'll talk about that a little bit more as the show progresses. But as a screening test, um, 70 to 100, if we're in that 100 to 125 range, that's in the pre-diabetes range for a fasting blood glucose or a first thing in the morning blood glucose, and 126 or higher is in the diabetes range. Now a one-time measurement does not a diagnosis make so you need that repeated uh, again uh, to see if we have two readings that are in that level before we would diagnose somebody with uh, type 2 diabetes You can also do um, something called a uh, two-hour glucose tolerance test that's very similar to um, if you are a pregnant lady out there that has taken your um, glucola test or your gestational diabetes test where you drink that um, solution and then have your blood sugar checked. That is one way to do it as well. And then my favorite way is with the hemoglobin A1C because that gives me an average Um, blood sugar for the past three months so I like to think about that one-time blood sugar check as um, like a picture and the hemoglobin a1c like the movie so I get much more details and much more information on which to base my decisions on that and a normal a1c is going to be less than 5.7 Your pre-diabetes range is 5.7 to 6.4, and your diabetic range is um, 6.5 or higher. All right, we kind of just went over when you should be doing screening tests, what numbers should be looking like in terms of your risk for um, pre-diabetes and uh, type 2 diabetes. What's really exciting in these updated guidelines is a little bit more expanded focus on lifestyle change. And if you're a regular listener to the show, you know what I practice is lifestyle medicine. And that is all about lifestyle changes, things um, like changes to our nutrition and our physical activity, our stress, our sleep, our social relationships, and any substances that we um, take in, things like alcohol, tobacco, and, and other products and how we can use those things to prevent, treat, or reverse chronic disease. And so seeing more weight and more information being given out about that in these updated guidelines is really exciting to me because I get deep down in the literature and in the reading of, of all of these different pillars of lifestyle medicine and can see how they impact things like uh, blood sugar and blood pressure and all our other – you. Know, cardiometabolic type issues Um, but it can be not as easy to see some of that if it's not fleshed out and kind of easier to understand bite-sized pieces of information so one of the first areas of lifestyle that I want to highlight and talk about in terms of um, diabetes is the National Diabetes Prevention Program okay the NDPP sometimes you'll just see it called the DPP But it is a program that is... Uh, Delivered by the Centers for Disease Control. So it's a CDC program. Uh, That's who accredits programs to do that. But there are many different institutions and organizations that deliver the diabetes prevention program. And when you look at the research and the evidence, it is statistically likely to reduce your risk of developing diabetes. So who qualifies for um, a diabetes prevention uh, program? is in that pre-diabetes range. So if you take that screening test, that paper test we talked about, you get a blood sugar that's out uh, or above that range of of normal but not to the the range of diabetes yet, or you get that A1C that's in up that 5.7 to 6.4 range. That's kind of the first qualification for being in a diabetes prevention program. And We do know that it reduces the risk of developing type 2 diabetes statistically significantly versus... Not being in uh, a diabetes prevention program or just kind of going it alone and trying to incorporate some lifestyle changes. So, how do you find one? What does it look like? What does a diabetes prevention program um, session look like? Well, the cool thing about diabetes prevention programs is they do not have to be delivered by a healthcare provider. So, it doesn't have to be a nurse practitioner or a doctor or a pharmacist or a registered dietitian leading those sessions. It absolutely can be. I am a trained diabetes prevention um, program lifestyle coach, but we have uh, other members of our team that are not kind of licensed or certified healthcare providers. And the beauty of that is you don't get bogged down in all of the medicine. Side of diabetes. You're just focusing on the lifestyle piece there. And learning from a peer can often be more motivating and less intimidating for folks. And so a diabetes prevention program is traditionally 12 months in length. And you may be thinking, that's a lot. And it is because what we know about lifestyle change and sustainable lifelong lifestyle change which is what we want and things that we do for a lifetime consistently takes multiple points of contact and when i say multiple points of contact that doesn't mean you you go to something one time for an hour and then just all of your problems go away or you just magically adopt the perfect diet and you're exercising like you should it is a process and so in the first six months of the diabetes prevention program Uh, People often meet weekly, uh, and that's in a group setting, so it's not one-on-one. That's the other beauty of it, is it's delivered in a group so that you learn from other people and you see what works for others, and you see that everybody can be struggling sometimes. And then in the second six months of the program, it's usually uh, either twice a month or monthly. Um, So the commitment kind of goes down a little bit after that. Sometimes they're delivered in person with, uh, when COVID began, we had to quickly flip to delivering those things virtually and so we run virtual diabetes prevention programs uh, at umc and uh, so it can be done either way and there are pros um, and cons to to doing that uh, depending on your access to stable wi-fi and, and those different kinds of things but it is a wonderful program and if you have medicare uh, Medicare Part B usually covers the Medicare Diabetes Prevention Program for free, um, so that is a. If you're sitting out there and you're going, well, you know, I know that my blood sugar is in that pre-diabetes range, and you have Medicare Part B, it's worth having a conversation with your healthcare provider to see if there is a Diabetes Prevention Program in your area. And uh, a lot of times, it seems like there are, are only programs like that around. The metro area, but I did a quick search this morning on the CDC website for. All of the programs in Mississippi, and there are 18 of them in Mississippi, and there are some in Tupelo, Greenville, Hattiesburg, um, of course, Jackson, Canton. So lots of different places across the state that you can access diabetes prevention services. So I hope that that um, is helpful and that maybe prompts you to look at that a little bit more if you already have a diagnosis of prediabetes or you're about to go get screened and checked for that. Um, One of the other things that I get asked a lot about lifestyle change as it relates to diabetes is what is the perfect diet? I get that all the time. Well, what should I be eating? I had a new patient just this last week that was referred for uh, diabetes education and counseling. And when I said, how can I help you? They said, I need to know what to eat. And that's a pretty common uh, question and a common way to think about it. And the good news is, There's no one perfect dietary pattern to control diabetes. All of them are going to have some general undercurrents to them or some general similarities to things. You guys know that I really um, promote a plant-based diet here, but that a plant-based diet does not necessarily mean vegan or vegetarian. It just means focusing in on the plants. And when you read the dietary recommendations that are given In the updated guidelines for diabetes, it's very clear that those are plant-forward diets as well. Not vegan, not vegetarian, not plants only, but plant-forward, meaning we're eating a variety of vegetables, fruits, grains, nuts, seeds, beans, all of those different kinds of things as well as incorporating animal-based proteins, if that is what you choose. Uh, If not, you can absolutely get that protein from plant-only sources as well. But I think the number one kind of myth that we hear about or that I see in clinic is that you can't have fruit. And that just hurts my heart because fruit is delicious. Fruit is a great way to um, target that sweet craving that you have because what's the alternative right if we don't eat anything that tastes any form of sweet right it doesn't necessarily eliminate that craving or that desire for something sweet so what's the alternative to fruit is it going to be a processed snack cake or a sugar-free candy that may cause your belly to be upset all of those different kinds of things so I don't want us to just blanketly throw out fruit. Now, every single person is different. Every single person's level of control and response to different foods is different. So if you currently aren't eating fruit, and you're like, man, I really wish I could add some fruit back into my diet, work with your healthcare provider, ask for a registered dietitian, um, and figure out how to do that safely, and without causing big spikes in your blood sugar. But fruit absolutely is a great part of a healthy dietary pattern because it's packed with vitamins and minerals that you need, right, and can make a wonderful snack item. Some other things from a lifestyle change that are highlighted in these current guidelines are um, focusing on things that fall into the Mediterranean-style eating pattern, um, which Mediterranean, again, is a plant-forward way of eating, it is where at least a half to three quarters of your plate is from plant-derived foods. And the other quarter is going to be lean protein choices, whether that be beans, legumes, nuts, seeds, or something like fish or um, chicken, uh, seafood, some, you know somewhere along in there. And so beginning to look at your plate, is the first step that I always begin with when I'm working with someone. I'll say, well, let's look at your current plate that you're fixing and let's see what our distribution is in terms of how much of our plate is plant food, how much of it is animal food, how much of it is added sugar and added fat and those kinds of things. And it's not about taking those foods off of your plate. It's about shifting the amount of each one of those that's on it. So if half your plate is your meat, and a quarter of your plate is veggie and uh, uh, sometimes uh, another half of the plate is grain or starch or bread, something like that, then it's not about none of that meat or none of that grain or bread. It's just about shifting so that the biggest bulk of our plate is that vegetable and or fruit. That quarter of the plate is more of that starchy grain, bread, rice, pasta situation. And the other quarter is that protein area where you can have your meat, your fish, your nuts, your seeds, your beans, legumes, all of those different kinds of things in there. Um, And people often get really surprised. And sometimes they get really emotional when I tell them that they can have that. And they go, I can still have fried chicken. Of course you can. Right now, I don't want your whole plate to be fried chicken and I don't want every meal to be fried chicken, but a small portion of that once a week, that's fine. Right. If that's what brings you joy and helps you continue to focus on making sure that the majority of your plate is full of other things, that's okay. Right, um, We have to give ourselves some grace and we have to, to realize that there are no um, kind of quote unquote bad foods and that every food can have a place in a dietary pattern and that we don't have to be so dang restrictive. Um, it's just about balance. And that's a word I use very, very frequently and one that I wish everybody would commit to memory is balance. How do I live a balanced lifestyle um, at, or Good enough is another word that I like to use, right? How do we do things good enough, right? So that we still enjoy our life, still have good quality of life, but are doing things that are scientifically proven to help support a healthy heart, a healthy uh, gut, healthy kidneys, healthy brain, all of those things together. You're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Josie Bidwell, nurse practitioner at UMMC, and we're talking diabetes today, and in particular, the updated kind of clinical guidelines for diabetes that are out for 2023. And we've talked about a variety of things, when we should be getting checked for blood sugar issues, uh, what are some lifestyle changes we can put in place, we've talked about the diabetes prevention program, if there's anybody listening out there who's been through a diabetes prevention program, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that program and whether you found it helpful. All right. I get asked all the time, what exercise should I be doing for diabetes? Well, there are, of course, our general guidelines that we have about aerobic or cardiovascular type exercise, which is that 150 minutes per week that we hear about, right? Right. While that is a great number, it often can be very discouraging for people if you are not currently physically active. When you hear that, that number, you're like, dang, that's a lot more minutes than I'm, already, than, I'm, than I'm doing currently and I'm not sure I can get to that. And the, the message that I want you to get is any movement counts, right? Absolutely any movement counts. And so if that is 10 minutes a week, that's better than zero minutes per week, right? So it's always a, a jumping off and a starting point. And we see dramatic improvement in cardiovascular health with much less than the 150 minutes right so it's important that we we just do what we can but what is highlighted in these um, diabetes care guidelines it's really exciting because it it's of course they mentioned the the 150 minutes but they focus in specifically on reducing sedentary behavior right so not what kind of exercise do i need to do but let's just not sit so much right? So not even a particular exercise, just getting up more. And so sedentary behavior is something that is part of our everyday life, Uh, whether we are a working individual, whether we are retired and at home, we do a lot of our day sitting right now, I'm sitting down at the microphone, right? Maybe I'll bring my walking pad in here and do one of the shows on a on the treadmill. Uh, But uh, not in this heat, I'm gonna gonna give that give that a minute. But uh, you know, I'm sitting right now, Kevin is is sitting in the booth Across from me Um, when I leave here I actually have to go record some uh, some lectures on sleep of all things so I will be sitting for that period of time and so sitting just becomes a natural part of our day so we have to look for ways little pockets of time to stand up right so uh, I always talk about how I dance on this show during the commercial breaks I usually get up and, and wiggle and whatnot I'm actually going to get up out of my chair at our next commercial break and make sure that I'm standing and moving around. And if you have a smart watch, that watch will usually ding at you about every hour and tell you to stand up. But what we know in terms of the best benefit for your blood sugar is 30 minutes. Right. So if you've been sitting for longer than 30 minutes and we're wanting kind of the best bang for our buck in terms of um, decreasing sedentary behavior for blood sugar levels, getting up every 30 minutes is super helpful. So if you're at home, that may be after you watch an episode of your favorite show. Now is the time to stand up and move around. And it doesn't mean you have to do jumping jacks or squats or anything. Just stand up. And move your arms around a little bit. Maybe do a couple of, you know, steps in place. Those kinds of things, so that you're up and moving for about a minute or so um, every thirty minutes. Okay. Another good thing is to, t- if you're going to do more kind of formal uh, exercise, more movement um, after meal times. So if you're going to take a walk, uh, take that walk after your breakfast, or after your lunch, or after your dinner. When you use your muscles. It helps your body use the blood sugar, the extra sugar floating around in your bloodstream more effectively, helps your insulin work better and can help you get better control of your blood sugar. So if you're struggling and you're going, I just don't have 30 minutes in my day to go be physically active, that's okay. Five to 10 minutes after a meal will help, right? Anything helps. All right. In these updated guidelines, there are some additional testing that they are recommending. And I'm excited about these because they have absolutely nothing to do with blood work. Right. They are lifestyle focused screenings that they're looking at people getting. And one is for mental health, looking at what we call um, diabetic distress Right, which, if this is a new diagnosis for you, or you're having trouble getting your blood sugar into the, the range that your healthcare provider is recommending, that can be very distressing and that can impact our success at being able to eat better, or to go exercise, or to sleep better all of these things that we know matter. Um, and then also recommending screening for anxiety and depression. And that's not just me asking you, do you feel anxious or do you feel depressed? Because anxiety and depression doesn't always manifest that way. It's not always a feeling of anxiousness or a feeling of being down or depressed or hopeless. It's things like feeling tired. Right. And having, you know, fatigue when you feel like you've slept well and, and done these things. It's feeling like you don't have the energy or desire to go do things that you've previously enjoyed. It's feeling like you can't sit still or you're fidgety. It's being irritable or having kind of quick to anger. It's um, not being able to concentrate on things or retain information. All of those can be symptoms of anxiety and depression. They, of course, can be other things as well. But those are the kinds of questions that come on validated screening tools that we use to evaluate for the presence of anxiety and depression. And so... I think that's one of the biggest areas that we need to address moving forward and how we uh, treat and manage diabetes is do we have associated anxiety and depression with with this and getting that treated so that we are able to have the best uh, outcome all the way around uh, from a mental health standpoint, as well as a blood sugar control standpoint. They also added sleep this year, which I adore sleep, not just because it's my favorite activity, but also because I feel like it is the foundation of uh, a good, healthy lifestyle base. If you're not sleeping well, it just makes all the other things difficult to achieve because you're grumpy and you're tired and you start to crave uh, sweet or salty things or sometimes both. But they are recommending a sleep um, screening in everyone that has diabetes, right? And so again, that goes beyond how are you sleeping and goes more to how much sleep are you getting? Do you feel rested when you wake up? Are you waking up multiple times at night? Do you do you feel refreshed? Do you have morning headaches? All of these different things that can point to underlying sleep disorders. Do you have trouble falling asleep? or is it staying asleep, or is it both, right? These are questions that we need to be um, asking, and so I hope your healthcare provider asks you those questions, but you can certainly ask them of yourself, right? And if you realize, hey, I don't feel good when I wake up in the morning, I don't feel rested, um, you can start that conversation with your healthcare provider about that, you know, how many hours you're getting. The sweet spot is seven to nine, right? So anything less than seven, For adults, and anything more than nine is usually not associated with the the best health outcomes. I usually don't see too many people sleeping longer than nine hours in a row, um, but I do see a lot of folks sleeping way less than seven hours. um, You know, kind of consistently sleeping that that duration of time. So I'm excited to see that, and then also the prompt to refer to a sleep medicine provider or a behavioral health professional, and the reason that one is on there is because insomnia is incredibly common in the American population. Insomnia is usually trouble falling asleep, staying asleep, or both. And the gold standard treatment for that is what we call cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. And right? um, If you're using a sleep medication, I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia should go right along with it. They should be best friends um, because it is clinically proven to help improve um, sleep onset, sleep maintenance, and feeling more refreshed and focused in the morning. We've been talking all about diabetes today and the new care guidelines that were updated this year. And some of my favorite lifestyle change pieces that are now uh, highlighted more in those guidelines. But I want to spend this last segment of the show kind of talking about what you need to be doing on a daily basis. I've talked about the things that uh, healthcare providers need to be checking for. And you you can ask for them to check for those things as well. But there are certain things that I want you to be doing every day if you have diabetes. And especially if you're on insulin, I want you to be checking your blood sugar every day. Right. Now, the number of times that you check a day is going to be determined by your individual healthcare provider, the type of medication that you're on, all of those different things. But when I first start working with someone, I ask them to check twice, at least twice a day. And the two numbers I'm looking at is that first thing in the morning, blood sugar, or first thing after you've been sleeping, if you're a, a night shift person, whatever time of day that is, after you've been sleeping and not eating, And then two hours after you start a meal, okay? And so that gives me, are two different numbers I'm looking at. One's called fasting, one's called postprandial. And one tells me how good your pancreas is just functioning as background insulin or how well your your basal insulin is working. And the other tells me how well we're doing in response to food. And the kind of general guidelines for where we want those numbers to be is before a meal, 80 to 130. This is if you have diabetes, okay? 80 to 130 and two hours after the start of a meal less than 180 okay and why two hours well if you take it immediately when you finish eating you're probably going to be much higher right because everybody's is my blood sugar is going to go up in response to a meal but in a fully working pancreas or the correctly dosed insulin or other medications, it's going to come right on back down within a set time frame. And usually that's at least two hours after the start of that meal. So that's why we check that number there. And I usually get folks to switch up which meals they're doing that. So like today, breakfast, tomorrow, lunch, the next day, dinner. That way we can see if there are any particular meals or types of foods that are causing those blood sugar spikes, right? The other thing I want you to do in every day, if you have diabetes, is looking at your feet, okay? So one of the things that can happen with diabetes is that that extra blood sugar kind of damages some of our nerves, and we get reduced feeling in our lower extremities. That's often called diabetic neuropathy, and what can happen is things that normally we would be able to feel, like a blister forming or a cut or an ill-fitting shoe, we might not be able to perceive as well if we have some of this nerve damage. And if we don't relieve whatever is causing the issue, if it's an ill-fitting shoe or um, you know, you've you stepped on something and, it, and it's been cut, those types of things, the injury just keeps continuing to happen. And we don't heal as well when we have diabetes. And that's when we can get things like ulcers and wounds on our feet that don't heal well. So prevention is the best key, right? That's why we should be wearing shoes all the time, well-fitting shoes, but also looking at those feet, right? And so I don't mean just the top parts of your feet that you can see when you look down but all the parts in particular the bottom of your feet and in between your toes because it can stay really kind of wet or moist in between the toes and then we can get little fungal infections in there or the skin will start to break down and get an infection so looking in all those spots And you may be thinking, I can't see the bottom of my feet, right? Like I can't get my leg up there to see it. That's okay. You can use a little, one of those little handheld mirrors you can get from the dollar store to point down there and turn your foot as much as you can and you can see. Or if you have a um, significant other, a roommate, somebody living with you, you can always ask them to take a look at your feet as well. And if you see something that looked different than it did yesterday redness that's there a bump that's forming a cut a scrape those kinds of things please let your healthcare provider know so that we can get that treated appropriately to prevent that infection from coming on board also want you to make sure that your feet are nice and clean every day Um, so washing those feet drying them well drying in between your toes is another good thing to do again trying to keep it from being real wet in between there Um, putting lotion on your feet because you often have dry skin that's more prone to cracking and getting infected but we don't want to put that lotion between our toes again remember we want it nice and dry between our toes and then if you've got to cut your nails and you um, don't see a foot care specialist to do that although if you have access to a podiatrist or a foot care specialist they are wonderful to do that for you if you're in charge of cutting your own toenails you want to cut them straight across Okay, don't be cutting down the sides because that's how we get ingrown toenails that get infected. Um, so cut straight across and then you can file the edges down a little bit. All right. So those are our everyday things. What about every three to six months? We should be getting that hemoglobin A1C checked and a visit with your healthcare care provider to review all these things. Every six months we need to be going to the dentist. And telling them that you have diabetes, if you have diabetes, so that they can be extra on guard for looking for any kind of gum disease or any infections that may be developing there. And then every year we need to be getting a dilated eye exam. So plan accordingly for that to have your eyes dilated so folks can take a look in the back. Getting your kidneys checked, your cholesterol checked, and your flu shot are all part of your annual things you should be doing with diabetes. And then I want to spend just the last two minutes talking about hypoglycemia and what that means. And that is too low of a blood sugar, which can happen for a variety of reasons. It can be that you are on certain medications and you miss a meal. It can be you took too much insulin. It can be you took your insulin and then decided not to eat. It can be from a variety of things, but we need to be on guard for it right because if your blood sugar drops too low it one makes you feel bad and two it can be very dangerous because it can drop too low you can actually pass out from those kinds of things so what is too low of a blood sugar well usually less than 70 is considered low right and people usually start to feel some symptoms with that there are some folks and as we age that are less able to feel that their blood sugar is dropping And that we want to be extra on guard for and are checking our sugar more frequently. But some of the more common symptoms are things like shaking, sweating, um, nervousness, or just kind of feeling unsettled, like something is is wrong, like something's about to happen, Uh, kind of almost feeling like you're going to pass out irritability, confusion, dizziness, hunger. And as we age, sometimes it's very much less of the shaking, sweating, that kind of stuff, and more of the confusion or mental fog. So all of those things should prompt you to check your sugar. Or just if you don't have access to your machine, don't delay treating your um, suspected hypoglycemia. You want to get some quick source of sugar. Now's not the time for your diet Coke. Now's time for about four ounces of regular Coke four ounces of juice. If you keep glucose tabs, which those are right by the glucometers in the um, store, it's about four of those, or four four pieces of hard candy. And I like to use the peppermints that are soft, like those big fluffy ones, because you can crunch those up quickly versus something you have to kind of suck on for a long time to get it broken down. And then 15 minutes later, you want to check your blood sugar again. Make sure it's coming on back up. If it's not, another serving of carbohydrate. If it is in the normal range, now it's time for a snack. My favorite is a peanut butter sandwich in this particular time frame. Some good carb, some healthy fat, some good protein. So if you did not catch our show today in its entirety or you have uh, want to listen to it again, you can always do that by searching for our podcast. Just search for Southern Remedy on your favorite podcasting app. If you didn't get your question in today or you want to know more about any of the things we talked about, you can send me an email, fit at npbonline.com. Our producer is Kevin Farrell, and our podcast producer is Abram Nanny. I'm your host, Josie Bidwell, and you've been listening to Southern Remedy, Healthy and Fit, on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.